0: Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, banks face an existential crisis. What is a bank? That is a series this week from The Wall Street Journal, and we have the banking team here to answer that question.
1: This is Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Now, from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grocer.
0: Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Steven here in the studio. And this is, this is really, this is, almost a, this is almost a Cecil B. DeMille production today, Grocer, We have a literal cast of, if not thousands, uh, about half a dozen. Uh, we have a large cast. We have a special, this is a special podcast. The banking brainpower we have right now right in this room yeah this is Amazing. basically is basically everybody but but Dennis Berman who's on vacation right uh, we have with us and I'll get to I'll tell you exactly who they are in a second folks but what we have today is is a lot of our banking team who has been publishing this week I'm sure you've seen a lot of these stories what is a bank a a long series on banking and its challenges in the early part of the 21st century and so I'm just going to tell you who's here and then this is going to be really just basically a, a really open conversation And... The, the one the one gist is that we have more people than we have microphones and headsets, so if some of this ends up sounding a little bit clunky, like as in Anna-Marie can't exactly hear what Aaron is saying, it's because Anna-Marie doesn't have a headset right now and Aaron does, so it's going to be a little bit weird. But who we have here with us, we have Aaron Lucchetti, David Riley, Telus Demos, John Carney, and Anna-Marie, oh my God, Anna-Marie, I'm so Andriotis, bad. Andrew
1: it's okay, Andrew, knows that, it's fine. It's, it's really, okay, <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm, I really apologize, no I problem. do know what it is. <laughs> So I see it, but I don't have to say it very often. No so problem. yeah, Okay. So that's who we have here. You've all been uh, part of this What is a Bank series this week. So uh, it's funny. I, I guess Dennis wrote the, the sort of the one that kicked it off, asking the question, what is a bank? But he's not here to answer that question. So who wants to answer the first question, which is, what is a bank?
1: Silence.
2: Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> you guys spent an entire week <laughs> writing these stories. You d- seems, what?
2: That just like shows a, how tough a question it is well, to answer. Well, right. And it you notice like we didn't have question.
3: a story answering the question. So That's true. It's still well,
2: TBD. That's, one
0: of the, I mean, I think one of the questions you can sort of start off with is coming out of the financial crisis, a lot of regulators, banks, you know, there's egg on their face. What were the f- steps that have sort of, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, that have started to change? the face of
4: banks well banks 10 years ago were much more focused on just making money for themselves that took up like a huge chunk of the pie chart now they have to make sure they don't blow themselves up they have to make sure they lend and help the economy grow they've got much more of a public service almost a utility um feel to them although their shareholders will tell you hey don't forget us we still need some dividends we still need some shareholder returns um and so it's a it's a big, it's a big uh, interesting question, and no banks really answer it the same way.
2: I think part of the reason for this question is when you look over, the, especially the past couple of years, um, as banks have, you know, undergone all sorts of regulatory change to make them safer in the wake of the financial crisis, and at the same time the economy hasn't been growing as fast as people would like, And on top of that, you have super low interest rates, which really hurt profits for banks. A lot of banks, especially the biggest, haven't been able to generate the sort of returns that justify their existence. And so that's forcing them to say, to ask the question themselves, well, what are we? What should we be? And in fact, it's, you know, shareholders are asking that, too. You look, there have been calls that, you know, whether it's J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, some people are saying they should break up. And they're they're not saying it from a political standpoint. They're saying it because the banks aren't generating sufficient returns. So they're saying maybe there's more value here if they're in different pieces. And that brings up the question, well, what is? what should those banks be? Should should the banks be
0: broken up? I mean, that's been a big sort of question, um, you know, since the financial
4: crisis. I, I,
5: I think um, it would be very hard to break up the banks uh, because if you're if you're a guy at the top of one of these big institutions, you don't want to break it up. Um, you know, CEOs of big companies get paid more than CEOs of small companies, uh, and so I think. Uh, One of the reasons, though, that this, you know, let's break up the banks thing has sort of re-risen. We heard a lot about that in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. It kind of went away for a little while. One of the reasons it's back is because the returns of these banks have been so poor that people are saying, well, we got to try something to improve things. And maybe the answer is let's,
2: you know, let's break them up. But I I think I think it's also because we I don't think anyone feels like we've actually solved the too big to fail question. I I mean, that's
5: definitely true. Right. We we know that if uh, if one or a number of these very large banks got into trouble, uh, it would be extraordinary if we didn't see the government act to try to rescue them And so we, we haven't solved that problem and the you know the, the regulators like to say you know we've made a lot of progress but even they say you know the, the bank's resolution plans aren't adequate and so uh, they couldn't actually be resolved if in the case of a failure. So yeah we're, we're stuck at this point where we, we said we're gonna end too big to fail we didn't. We're not sure how. And from the shareholder perspective, the, you know, it was supposed to be great to build these, you know, giant super banks. Um, They, you know, this wasn't, this didn't happen by accident. These were built, you know, by, uh, you know, with the promise that the returns would be great. And that that hasn't panned out. uh, Since the financial crisis, most of the big banks have uh, not been able to consistently return anything near what their uh, you know, presumed cost of capital is.
3: And I think stepping back from 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 what you said John and, and and asking, well why do we care if the banks are making money or not? Um and I think I think Anna Maria I think your story really spoke to that, which is sort of what what do we want banks to be? Are banks things that are owned by shareholders that aim to make money like any company does? Or is the lesson of the crisis or what, what we all took from it as a society that we want our banks to look more like utilities, something that serve everyone and everyone's interest and that we have a large public policy interest in, in part because of too big to fail? And so the question is, you know, is and I think, Marie, your story really speaks to that tension of, OK, we want the banks to be safe we want them to make money, what are the trade-offs there? And I think that the jumbo loans really illustrates that perfectly. Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, this was interesting uh, covering consumer lending for a few years now. Um, I've been hearing a lot from the large banks about how we love jumbo mortgages. It was one space that they just love to talk about and all the reasons why they want to cater to the largely, you know, wealthy borrowers who sign up for these loans, and try to get a sense of well, what's behind the reason why we've seen jumbo mortgages become such a more critical part of the consumer lending departments at banks. And well, a big reason for that is the pushback that banks have been feeling from regu- regulators uh, since the crisis. I think that mortgages really sort of um, encapsulate that, I mean, when you see the buybacks that they've gotten hit with from Fannie Mae, from Freddie Mac, when you see the tens of billions of dollars of penalties incurred um, from the from FHA um, regarding the loans that they were um, selling off to them, uh, you get a sense that the banks are really looking at a way to sort of uh, try to continue on, you know, doing what they normally do as banks, but in a way where they—is there a way that we can do this by sort of not having to answer to these sort of higher powers that be? And what can we do with regards to our own balance sheet? And what the story on Jumbo's looked at was how this, 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 this tension of um, well, uh, we we need to scale back on risk, uh, we need to stay away from these fines, but we need to continue lending, let's go to jumbos. Jumbos allow us to do that. And ultimately what results from that is a number of unintended consequences, including the fact that you have a number of uh, demographic and racial groups that are not getting as much access to financing as they used to.
4: Yeah. One of the great things about Anna Maria's story on on jumbos is just the the tension uh, in different parts of the government where the banking regulators want primarily the firms, the banks, the big banks, to be safe and to make loans that they feel are rock solid. But other parts of the government and other parts of the bank regulatory apparatus looks very closely at fair lending and whether you're giving everyone equal access to to loan products, um, and that's been a big issue over the years, uh, and it's one that probably has gotten pushed to the backseat in the last five years because the financial crisis was so, um, so damaging and so destructive to the economy broadly uh, that it's been sort of put aside. But that's changing now, I think, as the economy is coming back. This is getting more attention, both from the CFPB, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and other parts of the government. So the, the tension is, is very much alive and well in, inside the bank uh, regulatory world.
5: We've had a big um, uh, the debate uh, between the banks and the Federal uh, Housing Finance Agency. They would, they uh, Fannie and Freddie have said, "We'll buy mortgages that are, you know, that have a three percent down payment. We'll buy mortgages with lower FICO scores." And except, you know, for, uh, for in a few exceptions and some recent changes, the banks have said, "That's all nice, but we're not going to make those loans." Um, and when you dig down into why that is, a lot of it had to do with how, many, how, the, how much they had to spend to buy back loans that they thought they were no longer at risk for uh, from Fannie and Freddie and from the FHA. And the, the possibility of being sued for treble damages uh, is you know, terrifying to them. And so um, the banks say, look, we'll sell you loans that we are comfortable keeping on our balance sheet. Um, but we're not going to uh, set up a sort of double standard that they've as a trap, right? We don't want 3% loans on our balance sheet. If we sell you 3% down payment loans and a few of them go bad, somebody's going to come to us and say, how dare you make those loans? And they'll say, well, you, you, you asked us to. And, you know, nobody wants to sit in front of a Senate panel saying, yes, uh, you know, Mr. Senator. I uh, or you know probably yes uh, Senator Warren uh, <laughs> I um, we had two standards one for the loans we kept and the others for the ones we sold to the U S government that's a very uncomfortable position to be in and so credit sta- so they've done this thing where they they call it uh, credit standards have made remained tighter than the, than the federal housing finance people would like them to and uh, and you know that's I don't know how you solve that.
2: Because well, I don't know that you can. And part of this, what, everything we're talking about here, I'm going back to something us said before, was it all comes down to a question of risk and reward. And it's how much risk are you willing to take on and whose reward is it or are you talking about? So uh, tell us, as you were saying, yeah, the regulars want to have banks that have as little risk as possible. But as we all know from markets, if you have no risk, well, then you're not going to have any reward. That's a, it's like a U.S. Treasury bond. You know, it's, it's the risk-free rate. And so the same thing with making mortgages. The banks look and say, you know, well, look at the risk. We've had to pay tens of billions of dollars. There's not much reward for that. And then going to the reward side, the question is, is the reward meant to be that a bank generates sufficient returns that shareholders see gains? Or is the reward that banks are there to serve some sort of social policy? And so that's if you can try and figure that out, and I don't think anyone has, then they'll determine, should it be a bank or should it be a utility?
5: We did a a piece about this, um, I think about a year ago, where we looked into how much the banks had paid in fines and compared that with their pre-crisis profits. And it really was true that it wasn't worth it. They ended up losing money in the end because uh, the fines actually overwhelmed the money that they made by by making, you know, by purchasing these loans, by securitizing them. So it's not it should not be surprising to people that the banks are just saying, you know, we're, we, we don't want to go down that road again. Uh, and that's frustrating to the housing finance, you know, apparatus, but I don't see a way around it. Nobody can promise... That ten years from now, a aggressive attorney general isn't going to go after them. There's no way to to say that.
1: One thing on, on this point: uh, uh, last week, Wells Fargo announced that it was rolling out its own sort of version, let's say, of the FHA mortgage, its own low down payment option. And at the time, what I did was I, I pulled up the, the the sheet of who are the top FHA lenders, and I was shocked because. Just a few years ago, in the top twenty, you saw J.P. Morgan, Bank of America. You saw the big banks were there. U.S. Bank, um, Fifth Third was on there as well. Um, And as of 2015, the only large mainstream bank on that top twenty list was Wells Fargo. And you had all of these other sort of like non-bank, almost unheard—I mean, non-bank institutions, many of which. I mean, personally, I had never heard of. And it's like, well, who are these guys? You know, who's stepping in to fill that void that banks are leaving? Someone is, uh, but um, it's just not the banks um, right now.
5: And that but, itself has risk because um, a lot of these places uh, have a lot less uh, ability to say if they do make bad loans and the FHA tries to get them to buy it back. Are they going to be around 10 years from now to do that? They might not be. Very good point. And so, um, you know, if these guys fold, uh, it'll it'll be the taxpayers at risk um, rather than, you know, being able to find the banks. As as Uh,
0: usual. Uh, Let's take a break. Important message here that we want to get out to everybody. And then we will come back on the other side with the Wall Street Journal's
3: banking team. Hi, this is Kevin Sintemont. This is Beth Cracklauer. Check us out on the Off-Duty Podcast. We talk about food, cocktails, all of the finer (laughs) things in life.
1: Check us out at wsj.com slash podcast.
3: And become a subscriber on iTunes.
1: WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to
0: the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. We are asking and trying to answer the question today, what is a bank with the Wall Street Journal's banking team? You guys have been publishing stories all week on a special series on this topic. And I I have a question for all of you and i 'm wondering, in the time before your stories went out, when you were talking to people, getting information, compiling it, and in the time since your stories have been have come out, what has the reaction been for instance, when you were talking to people ahead of time and you kind of were asking questions and getting around this issue of what is a bank with this sort of existential crisis was the Response: Oh yeah, that's a really smart article to do. Or was the response: Why are you doing that now? Or was the response: This is timely or not timely? You know, what are people saying about? Because what I'm really trying to get at is why this moment for this series. Well,
3: well I think as um, I think it was I think it was John or or, or David who said like the. What's interesting is how far we are from the crisis and how few of those kind of existential questions have been resolved, right? We we haven't settled um, too big to fail and – we haven't and 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 more importantly the banks haven't found a business model the big banks haven't found a business model that really works for them post crisis that the the uh their their returns are not where they need to be and here we are 10 years out we've had this fantastic economic environment you know for the banks well with, well i guess you know yeah. <laughs> with with the, well with the exception of, of net interest margin and that 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 being a a, a, a big issue but otherwise yeah, I don't know what they call fantastic actually <laughs> right. quite the opposite well okay but but I mean but, but it,
5: but, it but, is extraordinarily low default rates Right, it, everybody's paying off their loans people pay off their credit cards we you know it's been one of the most benign credit environments in the history right. of mankind it almost right.
1: makes you a little nervous <laughs> it's yeah, right it's so right. quiet you're like it's it Something about to happen? Not saying it is,
2: but, but, I but where I'm, it hasn't been quite, and Paul, going to your question, also, when we think about it, is in this presidential election year. The question is coming up again of what should we do about the banks? You hear Bernie Sanders saying, break up the banks. Mm-hmm. You hear Hillary Clinton saying, uh, well, don't break them up, but we need to change. There's also the, the Elizabeth Warren side of the Democratic Party. Donald Trump, not quite sure where he stands on breaking up the well, banks. Well, what time is it? Right. Um, and, and so you also have, you know again with the election as well, the prospect that there's a lot of voice on Capitol Hill want to reopen the Dodd-Frank yeah. Act. Come next year, so I think it's a it's a very timely question to what Tells is saying that the bank business model is unsettled, returns are lackluster, and the political question might be opening up again.
5: I'll tell you one of the most interesting reactions I got, um, which was the, the the bankers I talked to for my story, which were focused on the future of investment banking. Um, they. Uh, v- Almost none of them were willing to go on the record about this topic. Uh, Many of them are sort of in denial that things will be changing. Hmm. Some of them said, well, you know, I'm 50 years old, so, you know, I'm pretty sure I can last this out and, you know, retire. Um, Others who thought change was going to come and that their institutions would look very different 10 years from now said, I can't say that to you now. Because think about how demoralizing that'll be to my my team. If I go – if the boss goes on the record and says, you know, we're going to have, you know, one-fifth the amount of traders, uh, you know, five years from now, that means that, you know, four-fifths of the guys are you – know, all of them are going to say, am I going to be the one who, you know, who loses his job? So there is a lot of hesitancy. And even the analysts who cover banks – don 't don't really want to have strong be out there with strong opinions about what's going to happen five or ten years from now um, be part you know because their business is to cover what the banks are doing now and not be sort of futurists but uh, you know that you know implies that there's a sort of hole in thinking right people aren't really uh, coming to grips with the idea that things might uh, things definitely really yeah, need and to that's change.
4: And that's that's a really good point. There was a stat in John's story this morning that, that really brought this home for me, and that was the, the job postings of J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan's had a, bu- a very busy week. Their their CEO was out on the, the circuit um, warning about auto loans. They changed their dress code. But it, amidst all that, that, John had a great number in his column that talked about them.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, well done, Carney. Nice phone you got there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good grief, man. Is that, is that a special source that, call? <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. That's the that. Martians calling you back, Lucchetti. <laughs> <laughs> th- J.B. Diamond wait. heard you were
4: talking Everything about has it. to wait <laughs> for the podcast. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the stat was 2,000 employees they're looking for on the tech side. They, they, have, they have room to hire up to 2,000. And in terms of number of traders they're looking for, uh, 123. And wow. just 30 of those,
5: by the way, are in New York. So the, even the traders and sales people that they are hiring, most of them are actually you know, global. So their Wall Street operation is hiring you know, just 30 wow. people.
2: And that's something else we haven't mentioned. Tell us, this goes to your area, which is so in amongst all these things – the regulatory forces, the political forces, the macroeconomic forces, then you have tech and the prospect of disruption that's coming from fintech firms that are saying, hey, why do we even need banks? We we can replace them with technology.
3: Well, and what's especially interesting is that the technology is moving the fastest at the bank's kind of core strength, which is retail banking, right? Like in, in places like investment banking, which are... You know, kind of as you're saying, in an uncertain business model. Technology really hasn't yet begun to impact what the banks do at that level. When they're doing an IPO or bond offerings or even derivatives, you know, only at the margins is sort of fintech a factor there. But in in, in what banks? Really, really, do at their core, which is you know ho- hold money um, that 's where uh, fintech is most aggressively chipping away at it um, and, and 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 to your point to the point we were talking about earlier, when banks aren 't making a lot of money, that means that they can 't invest in some of the technologies that they need to stay ahead of these folks and so you know hiring two thousand engineers is certainly ambitious, but it, it, it speaks, I think, more to kind of the rear guard action than it does to kind of getting ahead of these things. And, and, wow. and you've quickly seen where other firms have been able to step in and, and to the sort of question to an outsider, what is a bank? Well, the bank is where I have my credit card and where my money lives and things like that. And increasingly, that doesn't have to be at a bank bank.
0: And I'll tell you, more, even more to your, your point, David, and more to an existential question, it's not just fintech firms that are asking that, it's central banks that are asking that. There was a speech, uh, I would really encourage people to go, go seek it out, it was Ben Broadbent was his name, he's a, an official at the Bank of England, who gave a speech earlier this spring asking the question, what is money, but in terms of what is money in an era where even the Bank of England has talked about, you know, just not not how serious they are, but you know, central banks are talking about digitizing their currencies and what does that mean and what will that look like and what does that mean for the banks? And in, in this speech, he doesn't take a stand on it, but he says one of the ramifications could be that you end up with a central bank that is essentially competing with banks for deposits and... Where are people going to put their money, especially if they're concerned? Are you going to put it with a commercial bank, which may or may not go under? Or are you going to put it with the central bank? So you get to this position where the, the very nature of the money and what that means and what it represents changes. What does that mean for banks? And that, to me, is a very large question that, you know, it's not going to be answered for a long time. But that, to me, is a really existential question when
2: you talk about what is a bank. Well, You're it, just, it, it goes to show that just everything is on the table right now. Right.
5: Yeah. There is a big problem uh – that the banks are that the inve- from the investment banking side of the business, uh, that the banks are not haven't yet come to grips with, which is, uh, in the in the in the old days pre-crisis, what you used to do is give away a lot of stuff to clients, whether it was data, pitch books on like what kind of companies they should take over. Toasters. They, they uh, the the guys like Goldman and Lehman and Bear used to complain that uh, the J.P. Morgans and the City Groups were actually depressing the fees on merger and acquisitions advising, because uh, everybody sought to make it up through bond issuances and banks, so they, uh, so they, and trading, and so they wanted. So, they, so the idea was you underprice a lot of the sort of uh, client garnering services, uh, so that, and then you'll make it up on you know on the on FIC and on uh, and on b- banking services to corporate clients. That's broken down now because they're not making it up on FIC. So uh, one of the things that they're probably going to have to start doing is repricing the
2: services that they provide. So, and, and we've th- already seen that in some ways on the consumer side, right, Anna Maria, when you've had things like, you know, you can't uh, charge the fees for the overdraft. So now you have to start thinking about, well, there's a cost to a checking account
1: uh with checking accounts in particular um, as overdraft fees have largely been you know hit by regulation uh, what you're seeing is that um, there there really isn't much, competition between banks anymore. Like there used to be competition like for people's deposits, and we're going to offer higher interest rates. We're going to offer you perks that other banks aren't. There really isn't much space for competition. Um, in fact, uh, a survey that we had going um, with the What is a Bank series asking readers to just tell us, you know, what do you do in your day-to-day banking? Um, I, we were looking through the comments, and one of the comments that came in was that, you know, banks are largely homogeneous right now in terms of what they have to offer. Um, uh, So ultimately, uh, what consumers said that they're most after um, when they're looking at, you know, what can the bank offer me is uh, online and mobile capabilities. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, It wasn't uh, um, as much about the interest. It wasn't as much about the uh, low fees as it was about... Do I need to step into a branch anymore? I really don't want to, um, and I'd rather be able to do everything online.
2: Yeah, but the funny, the interesting thing about that is, we just recently had a, a little item uh, in the paper talking about Wells Fargo. had found that uh, I think especially among millennials, while they all online banking is hugely important, they still want branches. It's just that they want different sorts of branches and different types of branch experiences, not just the old one. But going back to what you're saying about the lack of competition, it's interesting, too. It's not just that the banks necessarily don't want to compete, but especially for the biggest ones, there are wash in deposits. Interest rates are so low... They just really can't compete, you know. Okay, what are you gonna get? You know, point zero five versus point zero six on your deposit. The, they sort of look at it and say, "Well, what's the point?" Like
1: they don't—they don't need to compete because they have these record levels of, of deposits, right? And that's, right. Like, one thing that I've been thinking about as having some conversations about what can we expect as the Federal Reserve continues to you know raise interest rates down the road. Um, one big question I'm getting from people is: Do, do you think that? interest rates on my savings account, on my checking account, will start to rise. And I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, do they need to raise rates when they have all this cash to begin with? I mean, they don't really need more cash. They have so much cash at a time when they were offering close to nothing, right, an in interest on checking accounts, for example. Uh, just, just something that I've been sort of thinking about.
4: I think that's about to change. I, I, I think in the last couple of months, you started to see Interest rates uh, start to creep back up again. Um, Goldman Sachs got into the retail deposit market, offering like 20 times what J.P. Morgan is on savings account rates. I mean, it's not big money, but it's 1% versus like 0.005%. I'm, I'm not exactly sure of that number, but it's much higher. Other banks like Discover and Ally um, are, are offering much higher rates, and people start to look at that as rates rates move up. Yeah, There, there is going to be...
5: Um, More competition to um, from things like mutual funds and um, and other asset managers are going to make bids for those dollars that are sitting in the banks as rates go up. So I don't think banks will be able to keep the rates on their deposit rates very low for very long. But you know they'll 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 try as hard as they can. um, And because you know the big dream, if you're a bank, right, is to make sure that you're paying that as rates go up and you, the interest you're charging on the loans goes up that you try to keep down the cost of your funding as low as possible for as long as possible so they'll try really hard and whether it's like really cool apps that they offer us you know the the, the modern equivalent of a toaster anything but you know, higher interest rates, they'll try. But I I think eventually that's going to crash. I think I'll take
2: take the other side of you on that, John, for for two reasons. Um, You love toasters. Yeah, I love (laughs) toasters. That's it. But but part of it, and this is just sort of the the biggest banks, but you look at JPMorgan Chase, which I think has a little over $1.1 trillion in deposits. I don't think they're going to worry if they lose some of those. In fact, if you look at the banking system as a whole, loans, right, because loans as a percentage of deposits are still only around 75 percent. So there's a lot of room there. I think it'll depend on what kind of deposits. They will willingly lose a lot
5: of these large corporate, uh, what they call non-operational deposits, money just sitting around that the corporation doesn't need, but – and for one of the reasons is that the regulations really penalize you that don't reward you for holding that kind of deposits, but small retail deposits are actually the gold standard right now, which is why Goldman wants this retail bank and why it's set it up why it's paying high interest rates uh, and so if they need to defend those deposits uh, that 's what they 'll do that that 's what they really want
3: well and it also speaks to I think one of the profound ironies uh, kind of circling all this, which is that as as banks now increasingly need to defend their turf, especially with those retail deposits and things, what you see is, and as they fend off competitors that are in the non-bank universe, whether those are tech firms or mutual funds and things like that, is that Wall Street and Washington may end up having much more in common than I think we've taken for granted. I think over the last few years, we've gotten used to this conflict between the banks and Washington. But what I find in my world, when I talk to banks about technology and upstart competitors and things like that, and, and I mean, the biggest compl- complaint of fintech firms is, the, is the, the degree to which Washington protects banks, puts a regulatory moat around them, and especially around that deposit. I mean, when, we, when you talk about small retail deposits, you're talking about FDIC insurance, and that is just a, a profound barrier to entry for a lot of people in retail banking. So I think, I think one, one thing that we didn't address in this series, and it might be interesting to look at again in a couple of years, is the extent to which Wall Street turns to Washington as its protector and says, okay, fine, you've extracted all of this from us over the last few years. Now you owe us at least to help us stave off these little guys that are going to chip away at us even further.
0: All right. Well, that'll be the uh, the lead story of the next time you do this What is a Bank series. We are going to leave it there. I want to thank the Wall Street Journal banking team for coming into the studio today. I know it's a little awkward logistical fit for us, but I think we made it work okay. Uh, for Paul and Stephen, we also thank you, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks.